0: I am George Knapp listening to That UFO Podcast and having one hell of a good time.
1: Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. I have a guest with me making his second appearance on the show. I'm delighted to be joined by science editor and head science writer at The Debrief, also a self-professed nerd, published author, and all-around good guy, Chris Plain. Chris, welcome back.
0: Hey, thanks for having me on again, Andy. It's a pleasure.
1: No, it's uh, good to have you back on. Listen, and uh, we got thrown into a little bit of disarray, didn't we? Minutes, minutes before we were due to record. The long, delayed, awaited, rumoured myth prophesized about UFO report that was due October 31st has dropped. Uh, 12th of January 2023 so I think we kind of have to start there Chris don't we um it, we've got to caveat that by saying we've both had one run through of the report it's it's pretty limited as as many expected it covers 12 pages if you open up the pdf but bearing in mind the first page is the front cover there's in a table of contents which is the the second page and then the last few pages are summaries and appendixes So
0: glossaries of terms and all of that. Yeah,
1: um, I'm going to say straight off the bat, just looking and we're talking now half an hour worth of reaction. Online, it seems to be underwhelming or what was expected, depending on what side of the fence you kind of fell down on. Is that fair from what you've seen?
0: Yeah, I I think um, it's so similar to the first report in the sense that it's like, here's what we're doing, here's our duties. and. We've had X number of cases. I think there was over 500 that they reference in this report. and This many have been resolved, this many haven't, uh, or at least categorized into a potentially resolved category. I think that's all pretty perfunctory. I think we're still looking for <clears throat> either, you know, videos, photos, or uh you know specific conclusions on things and i i still felt like it was really thin on any of that obviously there was no videos or photos at all and is that realistic
1: do- though is it, to expect photos and videos in one of these reports from the unclassified version anyway are we, are we really going to get that
0: you know uh, when they did that uh the the one press conference on it and they showed that real brief video or whatever that a lot of people you know we all kind of said was garbage. It wasn't much to it. I, I think maybe some hopes got up, including mine, that we might okay. see something like that. I still feel like, um, and this was something I was going to discuss regardless of whether the report came out. I still feel like there's been a, uh, a data bubble uh, uh, that's been building with this, you know, Chris Mellons and these other types coming out constantly indicating that there's better fo- video and better photos and things like that. And none of that leaking out. I mean, really, if you think about the dawn of the debrief and the discussion of the triangle photo, which was two years and a month ago, <clears throat> it doesn't really feel like any at least government captured data has been released. There hasn't been any at, yet constant talk of more video and more photos and better photos and you know, now since then, Elizondo's credibility has been cast into doubt. A lot of these other the people that were championing that data have been cast into doubt. So in many ways, we we've kind of fallen back into the gray zone that the UFO topic has been in for so long. While at the same time making a lot of progress, we have government offices looking at it and NASA looking at it and Avi Loeb type projects and. You know, there's in one hand, there feels like there's so much new going on. And in the other hand, when I look at this report today and I look at the summary, uh, you know, I think about the Twining memo from 1947 or Project uh, Sign from 1948, where they're kind of saying the same thing, like people are seeing stuff flying around. We can't identify all of it. Some of it may be exhibiting unusual flight characteristics. As a matter of fact, in the last report, I thought we got more detail on that. I thought they broke it Mm -hmm. down to, if I remember right, there were 21 incidents that were broken down in the last report as potentially uh, displaying anomalous or unusual flight characteristics. And this one just kind of said, ah, there's some of those. So uh, it didn't really even give us a number on that this time.
1: So on the, I get what you mean with 2022. I think there was a lot of progress and a lot of regression. It seemed at times people like Lou Elizondo, Chris Mellon, and others who had been quite prevalent for a couple of years took a step back. Maybe not in terms of what they're doing, because many would say they're still working hard in the background, still a lot going on. But like you say, I think with a lot of the, the chatter online, they just decided enough was enough, and let's just go back to doing the work in the background. And you can't blame them for some of the some of the heat they got. But like you say, it, there's then this void, isn't there? Of people throwing questions which they don't have to answer but it kind of left that gap and I'd like to think they're going to come back in 2023 at some point and make their triumphant return to kind of answer some of those questions but also help address maybe some of the issues people have not with them necessarily but with these reports the lack of information I'm sure Chris Mellon who we can refer to as one of your colleagues because he writes at the debrief now and again doesn't he yeah. Chris Mellon, I would love to see one of his articles published on this and what his thoughts are. I'm sure he's had that ready to go, and he's just hovering his finger over the enter button just now. And again, to pick up what you mentioned about the report being very much similar to the first report we got in 2021, you've got a Star Wars poster in the background, which many of the, the YouTube viewers can see the Star Wars poster. For those listening on audio, there's a Star Wars poster. Is it Revenge of the Sith? It's,
0: it's actually Revenge, Revenge of, Jedi. of the Jedi, which was the uh, original name of the 1983 movie, Return of the Jedi. And uh, these exclusive posters went out to fan club members, which I was back in 1983. And uh, then they changed the title because somebody pointed out to George Lucas that uh, uh, Jedis are good guys and they don't get revenge. So they ended up changing it to Return of the Jedi. So yes, it's a it's a, a limited edition collectible poster. One of the few uh, limited edition editing nice. I own. So.
1: I love that. And dropping dropping movie bombs on here. I like that. What it reminded me of, though, is uh, many people said that Episode 7, uh, A Force Awakens, the newer of the trilogy, the newer trilogy, was just a repeat of A New Hope, and it was very similar, almost almost a remake, and I think the, the report, to bring it back to UFOs, it seems like they've retread that ground, and the new team that's been involved in making the new report, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick and others... They've had to come in and start from square one. So as much as the report that came out in twenty twenty one in June, like you say, probably had a bit more information and maybe we're thinking of that extra stuff that got released through John Greenwald and others in their FOIA requests, that these guys have had to go again and go, okay, here's what we've managed to put for the groundwork. And as they say within the report, going forward quarterly, there will be the updates. Again, you can't guarantee what kind of quality is going to come from those. You mentioned numbers. Some of the numbers that are in this report is that there are 366 reports um, or incidents being reported since the last report. Some of those are actually predating the June 2021 report, but they weren't included in that report at the time. So they're, they're, they could be before then. Um, so overall, that means since these reports were asked to be be made, there's over 510 or a total of 366 in the new one. We don't see any information really at all on those, other than of those reports that 53% are characterized as unremarkable. They don't really then talk about the 47% that would be Remarkable? Remarkable,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah, it's not unfair to say, is it? But again, that's not to say that's not remarkable Chinese drones or remarkable Russian drones or remarkable US tech that's accidentally been discovered by its own Air Force or Navy. But there's still that potential that there's some interesting stuff in there. Is it likely that's what's then going to be in the classified version of this report? They get to see some of that more interesting stuff.
0: That would be my guess. That would be the, the key difference between the unclassified and classified versions and again i'm this is not exactly my area of expertise but i've already been in the chat with tim mcmillan and micah hanks and the rest of the debrief crew since this report came out and that is the impression i get that also uh they mentioned uh, airborne clutter
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: uh tim thought that the way they worded it. And again, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but we were just discussing this before I came on air that those might represent, um, electronic signal gathering, electronic intelligence okay. or, uh, yeah, exactly. He called it mass ent, uh, you know, uh, sort of gathering. So <clears throat> I think that's the stuff that they're always going to get in the classified report that we don't get is, here's the advanced sensors or the advanced detection equipment that the military doesn't want to disclose that they're using to gather data on potential enemy military yeah. platforms or whatever. And that it's picking this sort of stuff up. So that would be my main guess would be, yeah, they're getting more detail on the, uh, uh the, the 47% and then more detail on the advanced sensors and advanced systems that are uh, being used. And, you know, the the thing I always point out to people I say, you know, as a science writer, I, I write on amazing things that are, are done civilian-wise. For instance, I wrote one story about a team from MIT using high-energy particles to scan the inside of the pyramid and uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza. And the reason that's applicable, I think, in this situation is there are ways that science people sit around and think about using information that's available that just other people don't think about. So if you think of the massive budgets we pour into this stuff in the U.S. and into our, uh, our military, God only knows what some of those sensors do. God only knows what some of the systems, I mean, you can, you can guesstimate more advanced types of uh, underwater detection and sonar grids or things like that. But there are ways to detect information that are, you know, are would probably reveal a significant amount uh, about the nature of UAP that would give a lot more information because of these advanced data collection. So I think that's the stuff people would get in the classified reports. I, I, I unfortunately think it might be something for the history books as far as you know ever finding out what that sort of data is and what those tools are. People often talk about the U.S. revealing the the stealth fighter and the stealth bomber during the Gulf War, and that kind of being the last, that's 30 years ago, and that's the last time we really got a, hey, here's a really cool secret military technology we've been working on for 30 years, and we're going to let you all see it and uh, yeah. it's not something we get very often and if anything with you know the rise of china and with the issues with the russia now i think we're less likely than ever to be told hey here's the really cool toys we have and here's the type of data they collect
1: i think the the rise of china was star wars episode 8 working yes, title exactly. rise yeah of china, yeah. Uh, yeah um what was interesting from the report and i suppose this is me forgive me folks that i'm really scraping the barrel here for interesting being in the word but they do list the number of agents they name the agencies that have been involved in the data collection um including the the dia the nro the nga the nsa nasa the department of energy and and many many more some of those obviously stand out and like when you mention those sensors you see things like geospatial sensors and you talk about why some of these can't be can't be discussed i i remember speaking to gary Voorhees, patrick hughes and kevin day and they mentioned in terms of the nimitz princeton incident in 2004 that there was a an organization on the coast which has sensors that are looking for essentially missiles coming in and approaching the u.s coastline that picked up the tic tacs so again that's not something they're going to come out though and say Oh yeah, we'll give you our information while we're looking for ballistic intercontinental missiles that could hit the US and how we how we how we detect those and you know what we might have. So that kind of stuff is never going to come out. But it's interesting, those organizations, how much input they had is also up for up for debate because it could literally be Sean Kirkpatrick sending an email to someone at NASA and NASA sending back a a zip file saying, Here you go, here's some stuff I've got, have a look through it. And then that's that's part of the study. However, it could be a lot more than that. We're, we just don't know. So it's interesting and at least encouraging to see that all these organizations are involved and they are being looked at. But for Sean Kirkpatrick and co, it's been about six months. It's a lot to ask them to put together a huge portfolio with all that information. And I'll go back to, to 2021 when we knew a report was coming the first time. People like Luella Zondo and Chris Mellon sat on mainstream news platforms telling people that it wasn't enough time, six months or a year wasn't enough time to put together a comprehensive report. It had to be two or three or four years to really put together something something meaty, something that Congress and others could get their teeth into. So people have to bear that in mind as well, that while it seems that we've went back to square one from square one,
0: yeah, it's well, the I, quar- I, I...
1: quarterly reports coming that could see a little bit more.
0: I do think that that's the potential good news here is, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier the twining memo and project sign, you know, that led to grudge and led to blue book. And if you look at that arc, excuse me, that, that was the, the first effort was almost informal. It was just, Hey, the, these guys went to general twining and said, get a bunch of science nerds together and figure out what people are seeing in the air. And they came back and said, yeah, stuff is being seen. It's, if, if, if I remember the terminology used in that memo was it's not fictitious or visionary, but mm-hmm. it's a real phenomenon, is exhibiting anomalous flight characteristics. And, you know, in many ways, similar to that t- June 2021 report that kind of just acknowledged, okay, there's enough here to, to, to go ahead and move forward and have an official program. So now we have the official program, Arrow, and Arrow's doing their chapter one. You know, they're going, all right, this is now the official effort. Here's our first chapter. And it it references the 2021 and it references the original incidents. And then it says, here's all the new ones we've looked at since. But in many ways, the report is, here's our definition of terms. It was almost like a legal document in that way. Here's the glossary of terms. As you said, here's the platforms that, w- that contributed or the organizations that contributed information. Uh, I don't think we saw the U.S. Air Force in there, did we?
1: Um, actually, one of the mentions of the Air Force was that it was mainly reports from Navy and Air Force aviators and operators. So they're, they're mentioned in terms of the reporting and where the reports are coming from.
0: Yeah, so those would most likely be like pilot reports then? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think we're still, what's interesting, you know, Chris Mellon, you referenced, he wrote a piece for the Debrief a few months back asking where is the Air Force on this issue? Mm-hmm. And what he went into uh, in that piece was all the different types of technology and systems available, satellite systems, advanced radar systems and and everything that the air force specifically has to you know have domain dominance to have uh, full information dominance of aerospace just at the edge of the atmosphere and all the way down to ground level and everything they have the these and, and the the point he made was how much they dwarf the capabilities of the navy that the navy has a bunch of great technology and and has their own aviators and has to uh to monitor the skies as well, but they're a significant fraction uh, of, of the capabilities are not the eyes of an Air Force pilot going, hey, I saw something weird flying around. That's worth categorizing and grabbing, but the follow-up to that, the going back to the Air Force and as you said, saying, what, it, what did our missile launch uh, analysis system see? What did our satellites see? What did our uh, advanced electronic intelligence sensors see? So I still think that it one still gets the feeling that the group most equipped to discuss this and to really feed information to this office is still not doing that. At least that's the impression I get. So yeah, as you said, maybe some pilot reports. But yeah, my my initial reaction is You've still got you know uh, the people who were the were' asking all the general practitioners if it's cancer but the oncologist still isn't chiming in right and that's their yeah. area of expertise so in this particular case it still feels like for what whatever reason the Air Force is not participating at least at, at a, a higher up level I do think it's particularly encouraging the the groups you pointed out the NOAA and NASA and these other ones are providing the information they have. But again, that feels like more general practitioners. That feels like more people say, we got a little bit of data over here. We got a little bit of data over there. But the main group that one would really want to hear from that is their area to to, uh, patrol and and defend theoretically uh, are not participating. So that's the thing that jumps out to me. I would also say that uh, and just reiterate my initial point, which is, it feels like this is their chapter one, that that the mm-hmm. the 2021 was like a triage, you know, hey, yes, we definitely have a damaged patient here, let's get them in. And then the preliminary assessment actually done by the the new group, as you've pointed out, and a lot of people pointed out, not a lot of time to do it, not a very big group to do it. One One can be hopeful that at least it's being taken seriously that the report did actually finally come out. I think that's significant in and of itself. And that, yeah, they're, they're listing incidents and they're still saying 47%. We don't know what they are. And a huge, at least some percentage of these, I think they again mention anomalous or unconventional flight characteristics. That's still in this report. That hasn't been weeded out yet.
1: Well, Chris, we've went over it as literally as it's dropped. We've not had a long time to look at it and a lot of dust will settle. No doubt people will find particular wording that may or may not have changed or something that was interesting within it. So we'll look forward to that happening over the coming days. I'll be doing a breakdown with Dan uh, in the coming days as well, or it's already out depending when folks hear this. Um, Like you say, one positive is that it's finally came out. We waited for it for the last two months of 2022. It caused a bit of infighting with some folks online and whatnot as as you can expect with, you know, the old interweb these days. But here we are in 2023. Um so at least that's a positive to kind of kick off 2023 that the report's here, it's out, and we can move forward looking onto those quarterly reports. I finished 2022 recording with your colleague Micah Hanks and we looked at the the year in review through different debrief articles. It was really interesting. So I want to ask you first before we look at twenty twenty three, Chris, what were some of your highlights of the past year?
0: Um I I'll do that. Let me just jump in here real quick because you mentioned you're going to be going through this report with people uh with uh, I would you say Dr. Clark I think you're going to be going Oh through. no,
1: Edward, with with Dan Zetterstrom oh, oh, okay, with Dan. analysis. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So um towards that end and I mentioned this to you privately already but uh, the debrief is going to be doing a uh, uh a UFO round table next week. And it's something we've talked about doing for a while. We thought the report wouldn't be out by then, so one of the things we were going to cover is why is it's delayed and what's going on as well. But this is just a good time to sneak in and let you know that, uh, and let your audience know that uh, I believe next uh, Thursday, so essentially a week from today, uh, around the around, uh, I think a ten eleven a.m. Pacific time, so about two Eastern here in the states. Uh, we'll be jumping on. I'll have Micah on. I'll have Tim McMillan on. i have Chrissy Newton on. And she's got lots of interesting stuff about Jacques Vallée's new book and uh, Elizondo's book and James Fox's movie he's working on. Uh, Micah has a lot. And, and I think that's what you just were kind of leading towards was stuff that the debrief has covered in the last year, mm. um, which was, uh, you know, uh, FAA and. Uh, uh, AIAA and other organizations kind of getting involved in the process of at minimum pilots having a way to report incidents that they're coming across and civilians and military both having a way. So uh, that's something we're going to do next week. And hopefully by then uh, there'll be a little more clarity on this report and where things are going. I know uh, Micah was working, uh, there should be a feature coming out in the debrief here in the next couple hours and uh, he was working on this uh, for weeks now in anticipation of the report coming out. So I can tell you that he's got a big feature on this new report. He's been reaching out to uh, DOD and I believe Mellon and Elizondo and some of these people too. So hopefully we have some some tasty quotes to serve the people from the debrief. Um, as far as last year, uh, you know, we really got our footing at the debrief in a very interesting way. You know, our numbers are up and, you know, the performance of the site in and of itself. And we found a really interesting, um, really interesting uh, process has taken place where the the science side and the UFO side have have started to meet each other in the middle a lot. And I tell people this all the time. I say, you know, I write a lot of articles about the search for life in the cosmos, or whether it's habitable exoplanets or a search for life in the clouds of Venus or things like that, but as well as technosignatures, the actual search for intelligent life with engineering and, and equipment. And uh, one of the big highlights, one of the things that came out right here at the end of the year uh, was my piece on um, uh, the, the group using the LIGO a telescope to look for uh, warp trails. Do you mind if I jump mm. into that real quick?
1: No, that was going to be my first one anyway.
0: Okay. So yeah, um, I think this is really significant and this has the opportunity. I spoke to one of the re- lead researchers literally again yesterday about it because they're working on their follow-up paper. But for your for your listeners, in short, this is what's going on. So Way back in 1916, Albert Einstein predicted that there would be something called gravitational waves, that things that were large enough had enough mass or things that were warping space-time, like a warp drive, uh, although he wasn't thinking about warp drives in 1916, uh, would warp space-time, and we should be able to detect that, that using the right equipment we should be able to detect that. It took a 100 years. It wasn't until 2015 that this... uh, Pair of lasers. It's called the Laser Interferometer. Uh, I forget. Uh, I, I forget what GO stands for. O is Observatory. A, a gravitational Observatory. So they have this laser all the way up in the northeast or northwestern corner of the U.S. in Washington. They have one all the way down in a uh, southeast in Louisiana, and they can point those at objects in space, and by measuring differences and changes between those. In 2015, they confirmed exactly what Einstein predicted 100 years, or in that case, 99 years earlier, that gravitational waves are a thing. And they did it by looking at two black holes crashing into each other. So a place where gravity was so extreme, it's like, okay, if we're going to pick it up, we're going to pick it up here. That actually won the researchers the uh, Nobel Prize. I mean, it was a really... Uh, In physics, it was a really, really huge discovery. And the reason it's significant for what, for the search for extraterrestrial life, and in particular, the search for technosignatures like alien spacecraft, uh, is because it's a brand new tool that seems perfectly equipped to do this particular type of search. And so, and the reason is this. So, the, the, the guy I spoke to is a guy named uh, Johnny Martire. He uh, uh, runs a group called uh, out of Sweden called uh, Applied Physics. And they're like a Bell Labs. They're a think tank that has over 30 physicists that work there. <clears throat> and what they do is they analyze uh, technologies for, for venture capital firms and things like that and determine the viability. But one of the things Johnny, the, the founder, and his partner Alexei Bobrick did a, a year ago is they put out a paper on what they called a physical warp drive. I know I'm giving you a lot of background here, but this is... No, the, no. So they put out on a, a paper on something called a physical warp drive. And basically, their goal was to take the theoretical warp drive that people like Sonny Light, White or Miguel Alcubierre or some of these more famous uh, uh, mathematicians put together... And say, what would it take to build a real one, like a physical? Is the term uh, uh, Johnny uses with me all the time, a physical warp drive? And they came up with a with a design that works, at least from a mathematical and, and theoretical standpoint, but also doesn't require any of the uh, exotic matter or negative energy. It doesn't have any of the what he calls the energy violations. So it. It's a sound plan if we have the engineering know how to build a warp spacecraft, and in particular, a sound plan on how any civilization, whether they're on another planet or here on Earth, would build one because the physics constrain the way, as he pointed out, whether if there was water on Mars two billion years ago and you had a boat on Mars. <clears throat> it would be shaped like boats on earth because water is water and go traveling through water would have to be done with the shape of a boat. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have a square boat or a, you know, a, a boat that's a bunch of sticks. It would be shaped like a boat hole. So and the physics constrains that. <clears throat> so after they put out their warp drive paper, they went about doing their business and living their life. And a few months ago they got contacted, uh, by these two researchers from CERN, and one of them is the Associate Dean of Physics at Carnegie Mellon University. So, you know, people that know Chris Mellon and know that family name, that's as prestigious a university as there is in the US, Carnegie Mellon. And so these really high up researchers that work on the CERN, uh, you know, super collider, they reached out to Johnny, and said, hey, we were reading your paper about the physical warp drive. And it occurred to us that if some, if some civilization was using this type of warp drive, that we could detect it with LIGO, that the LIGO Observatory run by MIT and Caltech would actually pick it up and uh, pick up the warp trail um, in space. And, and this, this uh, equipment we have would probably be strong. Have you ever thought about doing that? And he was like, no, actually, we haven't thought about that. But they reached out to the people at LIGO and they've been working behind the scenes and have had positive reception. And uh, uh, that's what they're in the process of doing now. I I can only say so much, but the point is they had a paper come out and they have a part two paper and a part three paper showing the work that they're doing. The data at LIGO, a lot of it is captured and stored. So they don't even need to go in and say, hey, will you point the telescope here or will you point it there? They can just go in and dig through the recorded data Mm -hmm. and look for the signs, for the the telltale signs of a warp signature or a warp spacecraft uh, in that data across the entire Milky Way. So as opposed to SETI, who's looking for radio waves or EM emissions, and one little location in space at a time they got to point all the telescopes there and record the data and say did we see a radio transmission? this has the ability to scan massive areas and if there are these telltale signatures of a warp drive uh, they believe they will pick it up they be- they're actively going through that data now and the reason that's so exciting is because it's brand new we didn't you know that, That paper, that Nobel Prize was in 2017. The research was in 2015. It was published in 2016 and the paper was 2017. So the ability to even use that tool and to look for something like this is a brand new ability. It's a brand new uh, hunt for techno signatures tool and system. And the people that are talking to me about it, that are doing it are legit high-end, extremely reputable scientists. As I said, the one guy from Carnegie Mellon, the other guy runs this massive think tank. And they just happened to reach out to me to tell me about it because I wrote a paper on their warp theory a year and a half ago. And he says, I don't know if you'd be interested in this. And of course, you know, obviously I, I did a whole feature on it and we've had multiple talks with them. And uh, uh, he, he 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 won't give me anything concrete yet, But he keeps teasing the possibility to me that when their next paper comes out sometime in the spring, that they they're feeling like they might have some positive results, and and the one thing I will add to this, the example he used that I put in the article was: imagine you're looking at a a lake from overhead, you're looking down at a, a, a cool, clear lake, and all of a sudden a boat goes by and a swimmer goes by, and then a jet ski goes by. They're going to leave patterns in the water. They're going to leave a wake pattern behind them in the water that is water waves as opposed to gravitational waves. Yeah. But using uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning and with enough experience, you could look at that and just look at the wake pattern and go, ah, that was the boat that was the swimmer and that was the jet ski without actually seeing the boat the swimmer the jet ski but just the wake pattern they leave so that's the exact way they're going to be looking or are currently looking for the telltale signs of either a massive spacecraft like a, the the they they term their uh, thing ramadar because of Arthur C Clarke's rendezvous with Rama which had Mm -hmm. this massive spacecraft that's so big, even if it's traveling 5%, 10% the speed of light, it would create a gravitational wave behind it because of its size. Well, if you have a little ship, relatively little, like the Starship Enterprise, and it can go warp factor 2, warp factor 3, and it's using a physical warp drive, it's going to leave a wake pattern behind itself in gravitational waves. So basically, uh, we've been looking for techno signatures with SETI for 60 years and haven't picked them up. This is a whole new tool to not just look for radio emissions, but to really to look for, hey, is there a civilization out there using warp drive? Are they zooming around the stars with the warp drive spacecraft? And if so, they feel like they're going to pick them up.
1: Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And that that's the way I thought of it was the the wake of a boat, you know, the ripples in the water. is That's what we're going to be able to actually pick up now from these craft. It's like we have, you know, Jurassic Park when they've got the water to pick up the T-Rex. We've now got the cup of water that we didn't have before. Um, and I, I wonder, though, we're, we've got this capability now that we are looking out into the Milky Way. And objects like Oumuamua that may have come past, we can go in and dig into the the records and pick up war whether gravitational waves detected. How close to home then do you have any idea? Could that technology work? And I'm oh, thinking, right. if there was a Phoenix Lights event, could you point those lasers over Phoenix and check if there was gravitational waves left behind?
0: I my understanding is it's outside the atmosphere. So if it were a Phoenix lights or something like that, which is within the atmosphere that they're looking for the ability of these two lasers. uh, But he did say as close as the moon in one part of our conversations, which is 220,000 miles, not that far away at all. So uh, in astronomical terms, so, um, you know, the space station is, 22,000 miles out. So it's about, t- uh, or, you know, I'm sorry, the farthest geostationary satellites. Uh, yeah. space station's about 220 miles out. So about 10% of the way to the moon is where our farthest satellites regularly circle. So astronomically close. As far as looking for something right in the atmosphere, that is a, that's a good question. That's something I will ask him. Uh, I do know that he's doing, uh, he's working on some other features for us as well. And uh, giving me some input on some other, um, I mentioned to you, there was a very high-profile UFO event in Chicago at the O'Hare Airport back in 2006. And he has some really interesting thoughts on what people saw there and what, 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 what could be a very realistic explanation? And uh, can you
1: summarize, so because some listeners might not be aware of what the Chicago O'Hare incident is? Sure. just give us a brief summary.
0: So there was a my understanding of the incident. It's not something I'm super expert on, but I've discussed it with Micah Hanks to get a little more tuned up. Um, basically, uh, people saw out over the runways. They started getting calls up to the tower saying, "Hey, we're seeing something hover." over one of the runways and it was a massive disc shaped object that looked like a you know a, a classical bump on the top uh, UFO disc sitting over the runway and initial reports were even that there was a picture taken or pictures taken yep. by like some uh, uh, ground crew that were working on around some of the airplanes that again like a lot of these things has never surfaced and there's never been confirmation of it but then uh so people were seeing it they got number reports pilot reports crew reports civilian reports so there was this kind of sudden are you guys seeing that moment and then a huge percentage of the reports excuse me said that the the disc object suddenly shot straight up into the sky and like a wily e. coyote running through the wall, left a perfect circular hole in the dense cloud cover over Chicago, yeah. and right where it had shot through. So uh, it's again, it's an anecdotal uh, observation only UFO event. There's no radar. There's no uh, you know photos or anything we know of other than the allegations of some photos, but. Um, it was a, a huge event that had tons of uh, tons of people react to it. And it had a lot of witnesses. So uh, it wasn't one of these, you know, uh, two two guys out on a highway saw something. This was a, over a big city, over a big city airport, and a very defined craft, according to uh, people that saw it. And then, yeah, it shot straight up and shot through the clouds, uh, almost like the, the Calvin object, right? Without the yes. cloud part.
1: Uh, yeah and it was daylight as well daytime it was like you say loads of witnesses airport I believe they shut the runway shut the airport for a short time there's a few there's a few photographs online but none of them are confirmed to be legitimate so Chris obviously the article is due to come out have you got a rough date yet for release
0: yeah I would say the end of the month so we're only a couple of weeks away um but yeah there's I don't want to come out and say definitively there's new evidence on that case, but there's a new analysis of that case uh, that may include some new evidence um, that has an an interesting conclusion. And again, this is from a physics think tank. That's that same group uh, when I was working with them on their uh, uh, gravitational wave and looking for warped spacecraft. He said, you know, I'd like to share something interesting with you, uh, since you guys do cover UAPs and UFOs. And, uh, and by the way, something he's very interested in as well. So uh, I, I tell people all the time, this is the dirty little secret uh, among scientists, is that uh, they're all interested in UFOs. And they all, I mean, the only time I've ever gotten resistance on it is people specifically like maybe an astrobiologist or two who their job is they're trying to find microbes on Mars and they get frustrated when they hear people trying to jump to the end of the book and go well what about the the alien spacecraft hanging out yeah. by the moon so uh, uh that's the only but even astronomers astrophysicists a lot of people that work in this area uh it's something they're very interested in and so uh yeah, he's, he's particularly interested in that Chicago O'Hare incident and has told me uh, some pretty interesting things about it, is providing me some new information. And, uh, yeah, I would say the last week of January, uh, I'll be putting out a feature uh, about um, some thoughts and some ideas and maybe some new evidence regarding the uh, Chicago O'Hare UFO incident. So, and uh, it's good. You know, it's not... a. Uh, it's, it's not all right. He's looked at it. And he thinks it was a weather balloon. We'll, we'll leave sure. it. Sure. So.
1: I mean, it could be a weather balloon just from a different planet. But yeah, that, that goes without saying, you know.
0: Yep. Uh, I, and I tell people all the time, since you went there, uh, uh, <laughs> I, I do think that it's very interesting to note that scientists in particular and, and people that look for this this is where everything is shifted you know bill nelson at nasa said when asked about ufos he said well this is what we do at nasa we look for alien life so why wouldn't we look at ufos and that's a major shift i tell people all the time i say you know when i grew up in the 70s and the 80s nasa was a space exploration organization there may have been somewhere in the charter there may have been hey if you run into aliens go ahead and report it but it wasn't it wasn't expressly what they're looking for but what they found is that not only is it something the public's more interested in but it's something their scientists are more interested in so when they're when the James Webb went up everybody didn't go hey great is the James Webb telescope going to find us some new crab nebula or going to find us uh you know, a, a, a distant galaxy. No, everyone's going, hey, is that thing going to spot techno signatures or biosignatures around another Earth-like planet? So that shift is is real. That shift is tangible. NASA and, and, and the European, European Space Agency and groups like that, there is a massive internal shift towards, hey, let's look for alien life because it seems so far-fetched, even in the 70s, 80s, before the first exoplanets were found. And I tell people all the time, there was a, you know, I was 26 years old when the first exoplanet was discovered. And I was past my college education. And during that time, taking astronomy classes at UCLA, I had professors that were 100% sure there would be no planets around other stars that our solar system was, and these are highly credentialed. UCLA is not an easy school to get into, much less get a job teaching at. And they were sure of it. They were like, don't even fantasize about that. It doesn't exist. And then I had other professors that would say, even if they do exist, we're not going to find rocky planets like Earth. They're probably extremely rare. They're not going to be the size of Earth. And they're not going to be in the habitable zone where they could have water on the surface, which is the right distance from the, the, their host star to have water. Well, guess what? That's what we find all the time now. I re- literally put out an article today about another Earth-sized, and is about 95% the size of Earth, rocky planet around a cool M dwarf star uh, about 100 light years away that's in the habitable zone. And guess what? There's three other planets in that system, at least two of them are rocky planets, and at least one of those, which is about 90% the size of Earth, is in the habitable zone. So, just the idea of looking for life on Mars, looking for life in the clouds of Venus, but much further looking for intelligent life, looking for societies on other planets and technological societies is just something that uh, astro- uh, modern day scientists take for granted. They are just Actively now looking for that. So it seems so far fetched even 20, 30, 40 years ago. And now it's just something that they're like, oh no, that's what we do. As Bill Nelson said, oh, that's what NASA does. Why wouldn't we look for life? Well, that wasn't what NASA was doing in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up. And they were particularly resistant to talking about life on other planets. Now they employ astrobiologists, people whose job it is to look at environments on other planets and say, would this be a good place for life? At least as we know it, you know? So I that's like a crash. massive, massive shift. And again, it doesn't get into transdimensional or time travel or some of the yeah. other more fantastical theories that people are excited about for po- possible explanation to UFOs, none of which I completely dismiss. But I do think it's, it's important to note That when they were talking about flying saucers from another planet in 1947, they didn't know there were other planets. They didn't know they would be Earth-sized or in the habitable zone. And they didn't know that they would be everywhere. Everywhere we point telescopes to look for planets, we find them.
1: I wonder if some of these these scientists and the changes in, in the views... These were kids who were brought up on the Star Trek series in the sixties, the seventies, the Star Wars movies, and now we're getting the benefits. The kids whose maybe imaginations were sparked and inspired by exploring planets on the Enterprise, and you know William Shatner and Patrick Stewart and these guys that they grew up with. So they've they've taken that into their adulthood.
0: That's that's is no more statement you have said has ever been more true than that, Andy. That. We have an entire generation of scientists or now multiple generations of scientists who were raised on forward looking science fiction and who are looking at it. And I report on it every day. We're building laser beam weapons. We're building, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of tractor beams, all kinds of stuff that you saw in science fiction that would directly inspired researchers that have directly inspired researchers to say, hey, Can we make a warp drive? Not because it was something they sat around thinking about on their own, but because they were watching Star Trek and went, hey, warp drive. I wonder if we could build that. A transporter. I wonder if we could build that. There's research into traveling by wormholes. I guarantee people that research traveling by wormholes watch Stargate, whether they admit it or not, right? Because people are traveling by wormholes. there. So we have more scientists than we've ever had just by the sheer size of the earth's population we have a much broader base of people because of diversity now in those sort of stem programs so we have just a whole wider range of perspectives it's not just nerdy white guys with calculators and glasses and uh, we have so many more tools and data and every time we find more information it seems to increase the chances for life, not decrease it. We find more planets, more habitable zone planets. We found extremophiles here on Earth, life forms that live without sunlight or in extreme environments. So the the science and the, the body of human knowledge scientifically continues to grow towards, Earth is not extraordinary in this sense, but Earth is ordinary. I always tell people, I think it's funny that scientists aren't more embracing of UFOs or the idea of alien either craft or probes coming here because that would be consistent with the materialist point of view. You know, the, the magical thinking point of view would say, Oh no, earth is the only place with life because God made us the center of the universe. And there's nothing like this anywhere. The materialist view, which most scientists, the God is dead view would be exactly the, yeah, there should be life everywhere. Because the same elements that Earth are made of are everywhere. We spot uh, uh, water around planets and the atmospheres of planets all the time. We spot carbon dioxide. It's all made of the same stuff. I tell people all the time, imagine you lived in a garden and there were plants all around you and you found out there are gardens everywhere. What are the yeah. odds that none of those gardens have plants? They have the same dirt, they have the same water, they have the same sunlight. So the idea that life is not only common in the cosmos but but uh potentially uh prevalent potentially at a very high rate and that it is uh you know on the grand scheme of time if we're just you know launched into space really in my lifetime i tell people all the time we we walked on the moon 26 days after i was born and i'm not that old you know i'm 53 i'm not ancient yet and uh, so just in my lifetime we've seen so much progress. Are we to believe that if the cosmos is 13.8 billion years old and we're 4.4, whatever we are, that in the 9 billion years leading up to Earth, that societies maybe haven't even come and gone? I mean, when, when George Lucas said a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I think that's something people would think about now. It wouldn't seem fantastical at all to go societies may have come and gone billions of times across the cosmos much less exist with us concurrently or contemporaneously or much less send probes here to see what we're doing or maybe even fly here if they have the ability to exceed the the speed of light
1: one more thing i want to mention on the chicago hair incident that really interests me and why this event still excites me it's not a roswell which I've said many times the the people involved have passed on their grandchildren have passed on, the the records will be few and far between. The technology was minimal for the time as well, and it it's really one of those that's being anecdotal and consigned to history until such time we find out the truth and and our government comes out and says here's the documents. Chicago here was two thousand five that's not long ago we had i'm right 2005 yeah i think 2006 2006 it's within you know the last 20 years and the technology was good the satellites would have been good the the radar would have been good the the military technology that would be protecting the united states would be good and would it have taken much at the time or even now to go back and say on this date at this time What do we have for the Chicago area? What did we pick up entering the atmosphere? What did we pick up leaving? You know, that's something that I'm sure at the time and on the day, there would be decent evidence for.
0: And to bring it full circle to the new report that came out today, the AARO report, I think that's what people are looking for. I think that's what we want to see. We want to see them say, "Okay, we've looked at Chicago in 2006 or or the Nimitz incident in 2004. And we've reached out to the Air Force and said, what satellites did you have pointed in that area? And we reached out to other organizations and said, what sensor systems did you have looking at that area? And what did you see there? And Chicago is a perfect example because it's smack dab in the middle of the continental United States and the, you know, in the in the Midwest, and is somewhere where we should have tons of coverage from weather satellites to military satellites to sensor systems on the ground to aerial platforms flying around, uh, AWACS systems, things like that, radar, sonar, and and things, we as we pointed out, that we don't know about. There should be data. There should be the ability by an AARO to go back to an incident like that and say, all right, we've narrowed it down to this date and this time and this location. Start reaching out to organizations and saying, what do you have? Do you have anything from that date and that time? Maybe a weather satellite picked up some weird electromagnetic anomaly there at the time, and it points towards it was an atmospheric event. Or who knows? It doesn't have to, you know, this is where we get into this military secrecy issue and gets people so frustrated because it feels like it's something we should be very, very easily able to do. We should be able to go back, pick a date and time and say, what do we have on file? Electronically, what was recorded at that date and that time and that location from all these different organizations that have observations in that area?
1: Well, Chris, so, just before we finish up, I've got a couple more things I just want to touch on. One of the listeners, Ryan, he asks, Have you got any thoughts on Neuralink, founded by Elon Musk, and what made me think uh, this was particularly relevant? One, you're obviously a science guy in technology. But Danny Sheehan's comments on Coast to Coast about there potentially having been a helmet recovered uh, and a crash retrieval that helped telepathically pilot one of these craft. Um, and that's the kind of technology that 10, 15, 20 years ago would have sounded like still science fiction. But we're, we're getting close to actually having that sort of tech, aren't we?
0: Oh, you know, I just wrote an article a few months ago. You know, Neuralink is evasive. It's something that they jam the probe down into your brain, right? But I was writing about uh, this group that developed a helmet to let uh, tetraplegic, so people that really can't even move their shoulders or most of their Mm. neck or anything, but they can think about it. They put a helmet on them, connect the thing to their wheelchair, use some artificial intelligence software. And there's actually video on the Debrief's YouTube channel. You can see this guy. It's from his point of view, but he's driving through an obstacle course, his wheelchair, using his brain. And that's just, again, an external helmet, not a, not a probe stuck down into your brain like Elon Musk is doing. I think it's historically significant, you know, uh, there's a Clint Eastwood movie from the 80s, I can't remember the name of it, but he's flying a, a Russian air, air fire, airplane that has been designed to you, be controlled that way. He has a helmet on, and he's flying the plane, and you control it with your thoughts. That became part of UFO lore when uh, Colonel Corso, Philip Corso, put out the book The Day After Roswell. And they talked about something about that, about potentially this like strap they would wear around their head and uh, use it to control the, the spaceship, I guess, control the saucer whatever may or may not have crashed there. So, yeah, I think we went from, again, something that appeared in science fiction appeared as like, oh, that's a cool idea to, you know, I, I have doubts on Corso's claims, but nonetheless was something that was being talked about even 30 years ago. And now is something we're doing, something that Elon Musk has uh, monkeys playing pong with the Neuralink. I, we have that video on the on the YouTube as well. So, not only do I think it's, uh, uh, do I think that the, the we have a crash saucer that they had a helmet and that's what they were using or a crash ship? I don't know how it, you know, I have no idea. But I can tell you that again, it's a, a, a technology associated with the mythos of UFOs that is real it is something that we are working on now uh i wrote about johns hopkins university uh a year ago uh they uh they used uh they connected a guy to like a Neuralink type device again he had no movement of his arms or legs and he was able to control robotic arms pick up a knife put a twinkie on a plate cut a piece of it off stick the fork into it and put the twinkie in his mouth and for this guy it was a transformative event he hadn't been able to feed himself in 30 years or something the buzz the the patient and all of a sudden here he was controlling robotic arms to do it through software and through an interface so yeah i i think whether or not it's something that you know it could be something Sheen again, like I said, it was it in a movie in the in the seventies or eighties, a Clint Eastwood movie? It was it was part of the lore because of a uh, Corso? So whether Sheen's just picking through the lore and saying, "Hey, here's something that cool that could exist," I don't know. But if it did exist, it would be consistent with the way we understand science and the way we understand brain signals that you can interpret brain signals. And uh, in the case of the guy driving the wheelchair. If you want to turn left, he would just think about moving his left arm. And since his left arm doesn't move, the chair would go left, right? And same with his right arm or whatever. So, uh, yeah, it's technologically viable and something we're working on now.
1: It makes me think that Elon Musk really doesn't help himself, does he? Where you've got these organizations have paraplegics tetraplegics and people with disabilities helping themselves and have these experiences that we take for granted and elon musk's got chimps playing pong so you know sometimes you've got to just take a look at that elon and you know are you doing the right thing um one thing i want to know before we head off chris you've been great with your time and things changed so last minute for us which was was great to talk were there any articles you were trying to write in 2022 or leads you were chasing for exciting stories that just never quite came to fruition?
0: Yeah, um, so we get a lot of leads. You know, one of the unique things about being uh, at the debrief and the position we're in is scientists send me things, engineers send me things, UFO curious people send me things, and uh, as well as to the, the main debrief account. And sometimes we get leads on video or UFO photos, something like that. Or again, like a, a new piece of technology that's being developed secretly or something like that. And uh, it doesn't pan out. So um, I'm trying to think if I have a great example of something, you know. Or uh, sometimes, you know, we did a, a report in May on, a, we call it the Border Patrol Bob story because that was the guy's name. but. Uh, it, it was basically saying that the people who work the borders in the U.S., the Border Patrol, are seeing UFOs. They're seeing UAPs. I remember and,
1: the story, yeah.
0: Yeah, and there, there were a number of reports in there of different incidents and different witness claims and stuff. But it had a really crappy piece of video to go with it. That was probably just some birds, right? So being the UFO community, everybody focused on the birds. And maybe lost sight of the fact that not only is the Navy reporting they're seeing things, which is kind of what has spurred everything in the last few years to really gain steam, but the 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 Border Patrol working with military planes, working with National Guard planes, using these advanced radar systems and advanced tech, you know, uh, data gathering systems, are seeing things that they can't explain. That as Border Patrol Bob told us, he says. Uh, That's what I've been doing for 30 years. I've been looking at this stuff through radars and and, uh, through cameras on these planes, and I'm seeing things that I go, I don't know what that is, and I can't explain it. So sometimes we get a story that that we feel is significant, but if there's video or a photo or something associated with it that's completely underwhelming, uh, maybe we lose the story there. So that's probably, if I had a frustrating one from this last year. I will say, I have a story I've been chasing down for over a year about a, a mainstream researcher who works in nuclear fusion, um, who in their high energy experiments had some, what he described to me as interesting results when it came to modifying gravity. And I said, are you talking about anti-gravity? And he says, yeah, so we're kind of loath to use that term. But we have some interesting results. And I said, well, can you give me an example? And he says, well, we have video uh, where we're floating ping pong balls and floating pieces of wood. And again, like a main, main, mainstream college professor, scientist working on a big grant who works with NASA on nuclear fusion. But they work with really, really ultra high energy equipment. So because of that. They may have observed some interesting things when it relates to gravity. So they've been, because it wasn't part of what they were doing with their research, and this is kind of what happened with Sonny White with the wart bubble story I put out a year ago, because it was something discovered while they were working on other research, they can't quite make the stuff public yet. So I have yet to see these videos he claims to have. But it's a really straight shooter. It's not the type of guy that gets on the phone and makes something up. Yeah. The type of guy was interviewing for a whole other story about his nuclear stuff. And at at the end of the interview, he says, hey, can you turn off the microphone? And I said, sure. And he says, I got something really cool to tell you about. That'll be a story for you guys in, in the next few months. Well, that was over a year ago when he told me about that. And I know that He's somebody I've talked to for other stories since, and we've talked to, and I'm still getting the, yeah, you will get it at some point. I'll be able to release that to you at some point. We will be doing a paper on it at some point. But he won't give me anything more. So
1: that's that's, exciting.
0: Yeah, when I hear something like that, and I go, you know, what are the implications of that? High energy manipulating gravity. That starts really getting into the, well, maybe some UFOs are black projects and maybe people in the power situations are keeping, you know, maybe he's not allowed to talk about it or or maybe it's something that has been stumbled on before or or maybe it is brand new. Maybe he has stumbled onto something that hasn't been stumbled on before, but his team. So I would say that's the biggest carrot story I still have in a, that I'm chasing, that there will be a point this year that if I don't get it from him, I will probably just write the story and I will probably say, this is what I was told, this is what I've heard, and at this point, he's unwilling to, you know, or I can't get information or video. Sure. So there, there there will be a point where I out this person and who they are and the projects they're working on, and uh, I'll let the public decide. But yeah, and, uh, that's probably the biggest carrot I've been chasing that hasn't turned into a real story yet.
1: When you mentioned the... The videos from back in May that, like you say, were potentially more than likely going to be birds, but the actual bigger story was that they are seeing UAP on these border patrols or UFOs on these border patrols. It makes me think full circle back to the report being released today that sometimes in this subject, less can be more. Because imagine... We never knew about these reports. Imagine we never knew about the task force, Arrow, the DoD involvement in the last couple of years. And imagine today that the debrief breaks a story that there have been a couple of reports out in the last few years. We get the reports as they've been released, but we had never seen them, never heard of them. The story would be huge. Oh, the DoD is investigating UFOs. Look at the people involved. There's case numbers, pilots are reporting stuff. There would be huge excitement. And I think this comes back to what I think we are spoiled for what we do get. People absolutely are entitled to and should expect more and want more. That's the whole the whole drive of the UFO subject and the story and the myth and the love of it. But again, I've always said, if you take a step back and look at the bigger timeline of history, we're living in an age where if you put pinpoints on the years and months of when things actually happened in the UFO topic, it'd be so sparse for decades. And you would hit 2017, 2018, and it's just bang, 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 bang. Sure, some of it turns out to be a bit of a damp squib, but... I think we're living in a far more exciting time than people maybe give it credit for at the minute. And maybe in the fullness of time, these reports will be a bit more interesting or, or newsworthy than they maybe are at the moment.
0: I, I couldn't agree more, Andy. I tell people this all the time is I started following the UFO subject in 1977 when I had my own witness experience. And I would just before my eighth birthday and ironically, a few months before close encounters and star Wars hit the theaters. So, uh, I, I It's been something I've been following forever, and we would go decades with nothing or if you got something, it was Bob Lazar and it seemed real, and then you dug into it and went, ah, eh, maybe this you know, at least for my opinion, didn't really turn out to be anything there. And the same thing like the Corso book, you know, day after Roswell, that would come out and be like, Oh my God, we have a whistleblower, we have new information, and then it would fizzle away. The things that have happened in the last five years plus, a little over five years now, and the momentum, you know, I I tell people this all the time. Um, We've been dreaming about NASA jumping in on this and putting their hat in the ring and looking for UFOs. We've been dreaming about a guy like Avi Loeb, a professor at Harvard, jumping in on this. We've been dreaming about all these things. We've been dreaming about, you know, hey, ever since Project Blue Book ended in 1969, again, the year I was born. We went 50 years without the military at least openly acknowledging and studying this. And and maybe, you know, if, if the criticisms of Elizondo were right, maybe it was just a portfolio he carried around and it was a subset of OSWAP. And so maybe there really wasn't that much going on. But whatever that is, it's led to this now. This is real. The Arrow is a real organization within the DOD who's actively talking to all these different organizations saying, Give us your reports. Give us your data. We're going to try and make heads or tails of this whole thing. So what has happened in the last few years In the last couple of years? I mean, Ryan Graves is running this whole group for the AIAA that's about aviation safety and UFOs. and They're doing their own efforts now. The FAA is working on ways for people to report that. We may have whistleblower legislation in place now. I mean, it's... Anyone, as you point out, any one of these would have been, would have carried us for years, would have carried people that were curious about UFOs and wanted to know what was going on and what people like me were seeing in the sky that we couldn't explain. Uh, Any one of these. So, uh, yes, I think we get overloaded with tons of great stuff, but none of it given us exactly that one magic thing we want, which is an answer. Even if the answer is, Uh, It's secret tech that the U.S. and the U.K. have been working on together since before Calvin, and they just didn't want to let anyone know because we haven't faced an existential war since World War II, so we've just kind of been keeping this secret weapon in the back pocket since the late 40s and developing it. Whatever the, or it's atmospheric phenomenon. They're all Hesdalen lights, and they just shape themselves like saucers and look like craft, or shape themselves like a Tic Tac and look like a craft but are really just some natural occur, whatever the answer is, I think that's the main frustration will continue to be, we're getting more information, we're getting more activity, we still feel like we're short on answers.
1: Chris, you're never short on an answer, which is always good when I'm speaking to you. If people have enjoyed listening to this, they can check out our previous interview, where we go into a bit on your background and things as well. Um, And obviously, all your links will be down below. We've already covered with Chris some of the things he's working on. And look out for those new articles dropping in a couple of weeks' time as well on Chicago O'Hare. Chris, always a pleasure speaking to you. And I look forward to doing so again in the near future.
0: Thanks for having me on, Andy. It's always fun.
1: Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, UAP, And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see.
0: Tic-tac and not quite a saucer More like a hub designed by Chaucer A little Baroque and quite steampunk Like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of The little fucker hovered right outside of my window And when I shoved out the screen he made it an issue I don't think he expected me to see his ass But I'd had some champagne and smoked a lore Meditated a game of fateful, unmet, I can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself, and then I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head and everything was weird and everything was red. And I helped up my boys, they thought this was noise, they thought it was a dream, and they thought it was my toys, they thought it was my problems, and I think I should see therapy and I don't know what it is, because it doesn't really scare me.